Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 114. On this episode, I have Damian Mason and he has a podcast called the Business of Agriculture Podcast and he was nice enough to let me be on that podcast oh about a month or so ago and uh, I thought, you know what, I'd like to have him on mine too. So Damian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Casey Seymour. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and you were a great guest, and also people enjoyed what you had to talk about. We talked about the economy. We talked about agriculture. We talked about equipment, and uh, you were, in fact, I think the second equipment guy I've had out of my 65 episodes, so uh, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks yeah. for having me. No, man, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Damien, give me a little background on yourself. Tell folks who you are and kind of what you what you do. Well, as you probably can imagine, since you have this awesome Moving Iron podcast, you probably know that you don't really make a living off of being a podcaster. So while I do that, that is actually something for me for outreach for the industry of agriculture and also a certain amount of promotion. I earn my living speaking at agricultural conferences, meetings, conventions all over North America. I uh, show up and uh, they put me on stage. I talk about uh, the business of agriculture in a comedic way and delivering commentary. So that's what I do for a living. I've been doing this for quite a long time. I got my start as a political comedian back in 1994. I quit corporate America because I was a political comedian. Uh, I'm a dairy farm kid from northern Indiana. I own a couple of farms in northern Indiana where I live half the year. I live the other half of the year in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I am right now. I travel about 130 days a year all over doing my speeches, and I uh, was raised on a dairy farm, and I now live, like I said, half the time in Indiana, Arizona, and half the time on my farm in Indiana. Right on. So you have a uh, you're very, very versed in what's going on. You, you keep in touch with what's going on out there, and you talk to groups. Uh, you know, ag groups all over the country. Um, you have a pretty busy schedule. I've, I've seen what you, what you have going on out there. So you're kind of bouncing all over the place. A lot of stuff going on right now that affect the business of agriculture. So let's talk about China for a minute. You know, this, this thing that's going with China is like the, uh, it's like the baby that won't come. You know, we, we kind of get close and we get some, some birthing pains here and there. And then all of a sudden it's just a false, false alarm. This, this current situation right now, we have this 90 day, kind of hold over that we're going to all be friends for a minute and try to work things out and figure out what's going on. Um, I kind of have my reservations about that. I mean, there are some things that are popping up that, you know, every once in a while you see China's going to take this off of here and do this over here and they're going to buy some beans and so on and so forth. But I, I just don't see that. I just have my reservations about that. What's your opinion of that? And where do you see that going? Well, I agree. I have my reservations. Also, uh, we can probably preface this by saying that uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, you're an equipment sales uh, guy in Western Kansas, and I'm a, a former comedian with an agricultural economics degree. And they can say, well, what the heck do these two guys know that uh, I was listening to so-and-so on rural radio, or I just read this thing where politicians so-and-so. Let me tell you something. You and I probably know just as much as everybody else. So I think we can probably cut right to the chase. Here it is, December 13th, as we're recording this. It was, what, December 2nd or 1st or 3rd, right around there, when 
President Trump and his delegation sat down across the table at that picture we've all seen, if we keep up with the media, across from uh, President Xi from China and their delegation and uh, decided, okay, we're going to all get along and we're going to have this 90-day thing. One thing about – well, not one thing. I'll give you lots of things, Casey, about the business of agriculture. Uh, We tend to run for the exit screaming fire faster than any other industry uh, on earth. Uh, You know – the, the auto industry. Okay, yeah, some of them went screaming uh, back in the, the Great Recession and begged for government money. And, uh, you know, tech is always screaming about something. But we tend to panic as though it's the end of the world, chicken little sky is falling. Look at the consolidations that happened just a few years ago. We had a couple, a year or two of low commodity prices. And all of a sudden, these chemical and fertilizer companies and machinery companies say, good golly, we got to merge as fast as we can. Get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. And what is happening in the China situation seems to be the same thing. And they're just sitting over there absolutely probably saying to themselves, licking their chops, saying these Americans are running for the exit, screaming fire because we told them we're going to stop buying uh, their soybeans. Now, the reality is it's a global market. Uh, if they buy all their soybeans because they have a lot of people to feed, they have half, over half the world's pork is produced in China. That's a big number. Over half the world's pork is produced in China. They got a lot of pork to feed. They need a lot of soybeans. So let's say they go and buy every soybean they can from Argentina and Brazil. Whoever was buying Brazil and Argentina's soybeans now needs soybeans. And so when I hear folks getting all worked up that the reason we have $8 beans or $9 beans now is because of tariffs, I always shudder and say, no, we have $9 beans because there's a lot of beans on the market. There's a tremendous amount of supply. So while we need China as a customer, while we do like to take care of these people that are consuming two-thirds of our soybean exports, to use beans as the example, uh, it was probably foolish to let it get to this point. We also were being pushed around by them. And the business of agriculture panicking that somehow we're never going to sell soybeans again because we lost China is a bit of a uh, ridiculous uh, hypothesis because when when 1.4 billion people eating half the world's pork need soybeans, there's still going to be demand for them, whether they buy them from us or not. Now, Malaysia needs our beans or some other country needs our beans. When we went this direction of um, now appeasing or, if you will, um, agreeing that we're going to get along, that's probably not a bad thing because China now realizes we are serious. And, you know, you can like or dislike Trump, and I know it's all over the place. But this is the first time in 25 years that the United States has stood up for intellectual property theft and trade agreements that have been extremely favorable to China while not so favorable to us. You can say, well, we had a customer. Yeah, we did. We also go over there and they steal our technology. It was only four years ago, Casey, that Chinese nationals were apprehended in Iowa at a Monsanto facility trying to pirate our technology. So this is not a bad thing to stand up to this country. So I'd say that uh, it's still an unease. We're kind of more at that. uh, You asked the beginning question was, uh, is this going to be something that lasts? I agree with you. We bought 90 days, but China is still fight, feeling us out. This is a little bit like when the two guys don't fight in the parking lot. They agree that they still hate each other and they might fight, but they're going to kind of maybe hold off a little bit and not fight in the parking lot today. Right. No, and that's that's where I'm, I'm at with you. I agree with everything you just said there. The intellectual property portion of it is a is a big deal. I mean, uh, to have any access to the Chinese market whatsoever, you have to have you have to give them basically what all the all the data that or all the information on the product that you have and, and what it is you're going to do and then they you know go out and mass produce it and sell it on the, you know at a cheaper rate someplace else so it's nothing new that's been going on for 
however long we've been dealing with China, you know, the past 30 years for sure, you know. So it, it's a uh, it's a never-ending well, cycle, you know what I mean? Well, you know, Casey, let's uh, go, going with let's just kind of go one by one on the intellectual property. It's it really shouldn't be on the Trump administration or the Obama or name any administration to have to fight this battle if some of these companies had had a little bigger cojones themselves. Why were they so willing to jump in the sack with China and also get so mistreated in the transaction? I think that the companies that agreed to these terms probably have themselves to kick in the pants a little bit now saying, wait a minute, why did we agree to sell tractors in China, let's say, or anything else? We're going to just forfeit what 100 years of research and development built here with our company. And we've done that. I mean, we didn't, but the companies that went over there did that. And they say, well, it's just a condition of doing business. Well, what if a condition of doing business was also they get a, a, a you know, steal your kid? I mean, it, it gets to where, why were they so willing to do that? So that's one point that I would make that uh, from a, while it's a political issue, it was really uh, the companies that allowed this to happen. And I don't think that it was a smart move on their part. No. No, it wasn't. And they were looking for cheap labor. They were looking for a, a market, market they were looking for cheap into. labor and a marketplace of a billion and a half folks. Yeah, and they, they found that in, in China. So it's it's a shame that it's gotten to this point, like you said. Um, I don't think China ever really thought we were that serious uh, about what was going on. And probably just probably would have never happened if, if Trump wasn't president, to be honest with you, because nobody else did it. You know, up no, nobody point. else has stood up to them. And look at what else, you know, from a global yeah. level, they were allowed favored trading nation through the World Trade Organization. They have absolutely, when, when I hear, I go to these ag meetings, because as you said, I speak all over the North American, and there might be an economist or a professor or someone from the, you know, a bank there. And they'll say things like, well, gosh, it's just really as foolish that we went and ticked off this customer. China was not ever our customer because they love America. You know, they're very happy to take our dollars that we buy crap off of them at a $380 billion trade deficit difference, in case your listeners didn't know that. That means we buy $380 billion more of their crap each year than they buy of our stuff. Mm -hmm. They're taking that money and going to Africa and buying land. China would like to not be dependent on us. Why do you think China bought Smithfield? to have access to pork. Uh, So this idea that we're going to tick them off in every trade agreement, if I came in and said, hey, I'm a big customer, I buy five combines from you, Casey. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to shine my boots and you're going to give me those for, uh, you're going to give me those for your cost uh, because you need to move units. And you, if if you were really, really desperate, you might be like, all right, I'll give them to you at my cost because we got to move units, uh, but I'm not going to shine your boots. The reality is we've been bending over a lot uh, with this idea that we can't live without them. And again, at what cost? Yes, I think that business is business and we should absolutely sell as much stuff as we can sell. But again, at what price? Yep. At what absolutely. cost? Or, or at what terms? You know, the old thing in business, you either set the terms or you set the price. You don't set both. It seems that China's been able to set the terms and the price for a long time with us. Yeah, that is, that is very true. And it's... Uh... The winds have definitely changed into a different direction now. To your point earlier, I've heard that same argument about, oh, the tariff this, the tariff that. That's why commodity prices the way they are. I read three years ago, I was reading articles about how if we didn't, if we kept having these major crops over and over and over and over again, how it was going to affect the price and we'd have, you know, $3 corn and, and $9 beans, that, that $8 beans, stuff like that. I mean, that, I, that was long before, uh, any of this tariff stuff came out. So, I mean, it's not, it's simple economics. Is it, is, is the China thing, <clears throat> is the China thing helping, uh, 
helping the situation at all? No, it's not. But is it? Is that the reason why we're, we're seeing what we're seeing? Absolutely not. We came off of an incredible year, well, incredible 10 years, and, and now we're it's a simple correction, and supplies are up. We The hybrids that we generate right now, that are being generated right now uh, in, in corn and soybeans, the worst it seems like every year there's there's some little glitch someplace in the in the growing cycle, whether it's too much rain or not enough rain or whatever you know, and they just keep piling on the bushels on top of that stuff. So genetics and technology, seed technology is also weighing into this too. So here's the issue: um, China needs us as a customer. So as far as the China discussion goes, they need us as a customer. We still are the global economy uh, dominator. We Absolutely. are twenty five percent. We are twenty five percent of the of the world's GDP. So just think about that, dear listener. One fourth of the global economy still happens here in the good old United States of America, and we're doing that with less than 5% of the global population. So when you put it in that perspective, China needs us as a customer. So it's a little bit of a chicken, you know, where you're driving down the road, who's going to swerve first? They need us as a customer. More importantly, if uh, if we stop doing trade, every bit of technological advancement they've had is really the stuff they ripped off from us. So you talk about like Havana, Cuba. I've never been there. I would like to go because I enjoy smoking cigars and I like warm weather. So someday I'm going to go to Cuba, but they tell me that it's still got 1957 Chevys because we shut off Cuba in 1963 after the whole issue with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Russell uh, missile crisis. If we go into some sort of a hardcore, uh, disagreement with China. Uh, it's almost going to remind you of the Cuba situation. They're going to just be pilfering whatever technology they came from somebody else. You know, their I, their, their version of an iPhone was stolen. Their, their version of everything that they had was reverse engineered from us. But again, I don't believe it's going to come to that because they still need us as a customer. Now, they could probably get by without us as a, as a supplier because where tariffs do have an impact, Casey, the Russian grain embargo of 1980 proved this. After a while, the world will will supply what we don't. Uh, you know, the Ukraine can grow soybeans and uh, South America. Just read an article last week. Brazil had one of their higher up politicians announcing, and I think he was in the Department of Agriculture down there, if they have such a thing, announcing that they might bring on about 45 million acres. Of course, they use hectares. So I did the math of 2.3 uh, acres equals a hectare, I think is roughly what it is. I believe it was about 45 million new acres in the next couple of years that they might just bulldoze and bring into crop production. Now, that is about two states of Illinois. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. where if, if we do continue to have a problem, if three years from now you and I are still on our podcast talking about are we ever going to work out a deal with China, it ain't going to matter anymore because Brazil is going to open up two Illinois. By the way, just your listeners, I know it's not Illinois, but two of the state of Illinois. Right. Yeah. And that's, but then you're going to, it's a whole nother, now, now you even have a bigger problem with commodity prices because now you're really, really getting after it. Then you're going to have. Yeah, yeah. Now you're talking seven dollar soybeans because. And so can they can they, can the country of Brazil, the landowners, the business of agriculture in Brazil even justify firing up the bulldozers and going out and bulldozing off more land at seven dollar beans? So it's again, it's probably that guy posturing. It's probably that guy trying to say we're open for business. China, come and be our buddy here in Brazil. Uh, but yeah, can they justify opening up 45 million acres at $3 and 60 cent corn. Eh, probably not. Yeah. 
Well, I think also diversification is going to be a bigger and bigger thing. We're seeing that out where I'm at. I mean, diversification is such a big deal now. I mean, we've got guys that are corn and edible beans and sugar beets and cattle and alfalfa and just whatever they can figure out, sunflowers, millet, whatever they can figure out to grow. Um, and it makes sense with their crop rotation, their mix. That diversification is, is awesome. That's just a credit to the U.S. farmer for being not stuck in a rut. You know what I mean? They're, they're always looking for the next best thing. You know, I just, I, I get on the stage and I have, it's important to realize that uh, you could just get up and this was a, since I speak at agricultural events and, and obviously I'm, I'm uh, obviously gratuitously telling your listeners that in case they have a meeting in 2019 where they want to hire somebody to speak at their agricultural event. But the one thing I point out, Casey, is this, uh, I can talk about value added. You know, one of my uh, audience members, a client last week, um, he grows white corn, especially for human consumption that goes to Frito-Lay. And that's on a contract. So it's you might drive by and think that's a cornfield, and it is, but it's not corn like gets fed to the hogs. And then, you know, I point out to some of my crowds, I said, while the state of Illinois, for instance, or Nebraska is going to grow a lot of corn, and we're going to talk about soybeans in places like Minnesota or Indiana, where I'm from, that doesn't mean that every acre it needs to be in corn or soybeans. We did not grow soybeans in this country at any level until the 1950s, certainly after post-World post War II, right? Yeah. So while it is a mainstay today in U.S. ag, it wasn't even produced here until after World War II. That's not that long ago. So when I tell my crowds, you know that you might be growing more grain sorghum, why in the hell we grow grain sorghum? Because the affluent foodie customer likes grain sorghum. I've been reading the articles, Casey. Uh, it doesn't have the gluten. They don't view it as much of a processed product. Uh, you know, you can get into whether it's GMO or non-GMO, all those things. Kale, quinoa, which hell, I thought quinoa was quinoa, and I had no idea what it was until it was introduced to me a couple of years ago. So the consumer that continues to make more money, and this is happening not just in the U.S. or Canada, all over the world, they've got more money. They spend it on funky stuff oddball yeah. stuff not necessarily the same old stuff that maybe you and i had when we were kids right oh absolutely and it's there's there's uh there's foods i eat now that i wouldn't even dream about eating 10 years ago i can promise you that like sushi being one of them but stuff like that i mean there's things that that uh that have popped up and that, that i that are more readily available now than, than they ever were many times and before. by the way you just talked about sushi you're saying your listeners saying how the hell am i gonna participate in producing sushi for casey and damien uh i'm out here in kansas Aquaculture is growing in oh. my in Huntington, Indiana. There is a guy that now is producing shrimp. That did not happen a decade ago. A no. woman that I met at an agricultural conference, she's been a client of mine, and she's in uh, rural Nebraska. She also is venturing into, they have cattle, they have crops. They're as ag as Nebraska gets, and she's going to do an aquaculture venture. So ultimately, this is all very positive the consumer wanting more and different stuff is ultimately good for us because it's going to come, especially if it can come from us, not from Vietnamese, uh, you know, shrimp ponds or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's an ever changing, ever changing thing. So give me one more example of stuff that you eat that you wouldn't have eaten 25 years ago. Quinoa is one of them. I wouldn't even <laughs> I mean, you know what it was <laughs> until about two or three years ago. And then I started eating it because it's, it's super healthy for you. It's really good stuff. Um, Let's shift gears here a minute. So now let's talk about, you, you talk to groups, like you said, all over the country. You're talking to different ag groups from, you know, border to border, um, coast to coast. So how are they viewing the end of 2018 going into 2019? What What is their overall feel for 
the economy and, and how does how's 2019 going to be any different than 2018 or is it? Yeah, uh, of course, that's going to be when you try and say what's the mood uh, that's different from person to person. Remember, the old example that a long time ago was made at a point uh, when when uh, when you uh, don't get a pay raise, uh, you're in recession. When your neighbor loses a job, he's in depression. You know, it's the old thing. It's always very situational. Ag, of course, is counter cyclical. During uh, the rest of the country was going through the Great Recession, we were humming along, man. The guys in my part of the world were burying their money. What do you mean right. burying their money? I mean, they're taking their huge amount of money and putting in field tile, drainage tile, because yep. you have that make money you're making. Might as well put it into improvements, grain bins, uh, stone, uh, you know, water control structures, uh, new machinery sheds. So that all obviously came to a I don't see a screeching halt. It slowed down in 2013, 2014. By 2015, 16, we're starting to, you know, feel some uh, some purse strings cinching up a little bit. As I'm sure you were there at uh, the equipment dealership. Absolutely, yeah. If I had to give you my perspective, I'd say that it was 2016 and 17 that people were starting to say, "Oh crap, this is not just going to turn around." I believe there's a greater acceptance now that this is where we are. And to be honest, it is. Normal agriculture is about like this. Average, make a little money, not a lot, kind of got to keep an eye on things. It's not normal to have those huge boom years. So right now, I just pulled the stats when preparing for your, I just looked it up just now before you and I came online. We're going to be down 13% from 2017 to 2018. So right now here, mid-December, we think this year is going to be down about $10 billion of net farm income from last year. Now that sounds terrible, except when you realize that 2017 actually was up 22%. It was, or I'm sorry, like 22 billion. Mm -hmm. So we're not too bad off if you figure that, yeah, we're off from last year by uh, 13%, but we were up a big bunch last year. So 17 was better than most people realized. 18 is going to be down 13%. 2019, everybody's saying, okay, the big, huge benefit of 2018 was that we had big, huge crops. Is 2019 going to have the same prices and not as good of a crop? That could be the only problem. But again, I believe that these numbers on a global level are going to support less production, meaning there's going to be some of those marginal acres that don't come in. And you and I both agree, Brazil's not really going to open up 45 million acres with these kind of prices. It just doesn't support it. And they can't do it in two years. I don't care what they say. It takes yeah, 10 or years one to do year. That. I mean, they, they would like yeah. to have you believe that by next year, they're going to have corn planters out there rolling around on 40 million acres that wasn't. So, um, what's the mood? Dairy is pretty sour and dour, but mm -hmm. there's also an acceptance. I rent my farmland to a dairy guy that if that they're going to be treading water for a while. And also, it's not about size. It's not about mean old companies trying to put some small dairy farmer out of business. The reality is there's so much milk and and uh, demand is where it is. There's no need for as much processing as there is being produced. So it means that some of these cows are going to go and get made into burger mm -hmm. and there's going to be less cows. And that's the only way that the milk price is going to come back. Uh, chickens, I just worked for a poultry uh, related animal health group, and they think that poultry has been amazingly good for five years. This will be the year that they stub their toe. So really there's pockets, Casey. You talked about farm machinery is actually selling again because people held on to what they could. And then it's like, hell, I got to start buying again. So my machinery might be good. I think beef looks decent. Pork doesn't look bad. Milk is going to have to do its adjustment. These commodity prices if you told the average agriculture producer, hey, you're only going to net 
$35 an acre instead of 350 like you did during the boom years. They're still net. <laughs> you know, a net profit is still right. a net profit. Or a yeah. break-even is still not – you're not going to lose the farm on a break-even year unless you've got other problems on your personal financial side. Right. Yeah, that's true. And you said about the equipment side, that that's what we're seeing now across the board. I think every every equipment company out there is, has projected that they're going to be up 18%. 15%, 25% over last year just because of people have run the proverbial wheels off their equipment and now they have to either do one of two things, spend a lot of money on, on re- fixing and repairing what they've kind of piecemealed together or take that same amount of money and, and put it on down payment for uh, a new piece of equipment to them or a new piece of equipment altogether. So it's, I mean, I'm positive about 2019 when it comes from the equipment standpoint. I do feel like there's going to be um, we're already seeing it now. It's the first time we've had conversations with guys that said, you know, we've got a tax guy said we need to spend some money. I haven't heard that conversation in five years. So, I mean, yeah, it's been five years since you heard that. <laughs> I just, I just spoke at a banker conference. I'm sorry, it was hosted by bankers, an ag conference hosted by bankers. And uh, I said, okay, you've got four banks all lending to agriculture. Uh, how distressed is your, is your portfolio? And they said, we're okay. They said, uh, we're okay. I said, I said, we got one bankruptcy, but it really didn't have anything to do with just uh, this dire situation in agriculture. They had some other problems. They were, you know, they, they, there was that business, that agricultural enterprise was struggling, whether it's just this year or not. And they said, uh, we have some carryover debt, meaning we got some operators out here that are going to uh, carry last year's debt into next year, but they're not delinquent. They're just, uh, you know, they're still making their installments. Also, you talked about quinoa or kale or grain sorghum or whatever this is, or heritage breed Berkshire pigs or whatever the specialty. The specialty niche stuff seems to not be affected because that's still is selling. It's really, um, it's, it looks to me like it's milk. And then if people didn't market their soybeans, if these prices hang around, it's going to be a little tighter. But again, we'll probably see a few folks that say, I can't make it. I don't think it's going to be a mass uh, meltdown. If land prices go down 10%, it's probably going to have more to do with less cash to buy it or a bump in interest rates. Uh, I, I don't see it being a meltdown. I see it probably staying about here is my prediction. Isn't that what you think? We just stay oh, yeah. about like this. I think, I think my, my personal opinion, like you just said, I think 2019 is going to be a lot like 2018. I don't really see, unless there's something like crazy happen. Um, you know, China comes in and buys, you know, all of our all of our soybeans and they did say some stuff the other day about um oh with that the swine flu that's going on over there so bad right now that they've had to basically 500 head and smaller hog operations in china they're they are uh like calling those entire herds and they're gonna something about the fact that the u.s could have a easily have a 300 percent increase in, in the amount of hogs that gets exported over to china so <clears throat> i mean that's that's a that's a big deal that's a big deal hey, for you, you know uh insurance companies don't like to see natural disasters but there's a whole bunch of uh, other home depot likes to see them uh sure you, do. Know, forever, uh-huh. forever, you don't want to say there's a net win and loss but there are some times where there's a losing side and a winning side in this whole thing yeah if they have a bunch of hogs that are diseased it's probably good for the rest of it. there's another thing that we've forgotten is the economy globally going to slow down? Because not just the ag economy, we're in our 10th year of a bull market here. And if you have your investments, you know, you look at your retirement funds, you should probably be off about 10%. I'm down 10% from the peak. 
not 10% from what I invested because I've been doing this. I'm 49 years old. I started putting money in when I had my first job. So we're down 10%, but we're still pretty good. And so if the people of India are eating better and the people of Australia or Canada or here in Kansas, there's still a good demand for this stuff. And so while while we might say, oh, gosh, I think that the ag economy is still, uh, you know, slow, the general economy is buying our stuff. And so that's good news. I mean, we and we have a chance to upsell. I mean, like you said, you're buying quinoa. When, when do you suppose throughout the human history, a guy that sells uh, corn planters for a living says in western Kansas, oh, I need more quinoa, honey, when you go to the store? Not, not very often. Not very often at all. <laughs> not very often at all. The... Uh... The one, the one thing that I'm kind of thinking about now is, you know, I have Rich Poston on here quite a bit. Rich is a, uh, he's a, he's an economist. He's brilliant guy, super dialed in, has been making models for stuff forever. And, you know, one thing he said, this was a, uh, he's predicting a, a recession to start in 2019 and run through uh, 2020. And he said, this, this is probably one of the first times in history where the rest of the world may, is going to give the United States a cold and not, not the United States giving the rest of the world a cold when it comes to, to the economy. So, you know, you could see some dips there, I think, with with, with interest rates the way they are and, and what the, how the Fed is reacting to stuff. That could slow some stuff in the economy if things do get sideways a little bit. But um, like you said, I mean, it's the stock market is charging, for, and it's the only one in the world doing that. So it'll be a uh, interesting ride in 2019, I think, just to kind of watch and see how things play out. Casey, the one thing, you know, I've got an agricultural economics degree, and I can tell you there's the agriculture and there's the economics. For one thing, uh, you can talk about corn prices, and, and it definitely comes down to supply and demand. Okay, now let's talk about economics, because economics really is about human decision-making, and humans are an emotional animal. Humans also like to follow the herd, and, and there's people listening to this right now, and most of the agricultural people can say, I'm not that way, by God, I don't do that, I'm a rugged individualist, like really? How is it that when the neighbor that you uh, drink coffee with decided he's going to switch from Chevy to Ford, all of a sudden you decide maybe you switch from a Chevy to Ford also. And so did nine other guys. So people love to pretend in this business that they are rugged individuals and they're not impacted by herd mentality. They're lying. Casey, there's a thing called herd mentality and there's a thing called uh, follow the leader. And you know what? If the media keeps saying in 2019, we're probably going to see recession. Then all of a sudden, the guy at the coffee shop that everybody listens to says, looks to me like 2019, we're probably going to see a recession. By God, you'd be amazed. We can talk ourselves into recession because humans are an emotional animal. Uh, there is no fundamental reason for the huge ups or the huge downs that sometimes we see. Now, granted, 2008, uh, banks had fraudulently cooked the books. Right. There's a big reason for a meltdown. But right. as far as all of a sudden consumer spending is going down, and if that's going to happen, you'd say, why? Well, maybe it's because the media kept saying it was time for a recession and humans can talk themselves. You know, it's the old thing about psychosomatic. If you went, if you hadn't told your kid at dinner here tonight, you don't look very good. You have the flu. If you told your kid for the next hour and a half that they didn't look good and had the flu, Tomorrow, they probably would say they couldn't go to school because they were sick. The humans can talk themselves into a lot of stuff. I think that some of the economic uh, for, forecasting is a little bit – it's a little bit like we're going to make sure that we uh, that we we talk ourselves into this. And I, I believe there's not a big fundamental reason why we should have any cataclysmic uh, meltdown. 
Yeah, no. And I agree. That's and that's kind of what there's that's what everyone I've read and all the stuff that I've seen out there is it's going to be more of a blip than it's going to be a huge just bottom of the stock market's going to fall out or anything like that. It's just been very uh they're trading lightly on on anything like that too so yeah i mean we didn't have a war you know in post-world war ii when you've got half of europe that's pushing a wheelbarrow around uh, with all of their belongings in it and then you know they're looking for something they can trade for a loaf of bread okay you can understand things were a disaster if you know those poor people uh well, here in the u.s we're saying that now the family that uh was going to go and uh and spend $393 uh, on the kids' toy, the one per kid on toys is now going back it down to $376 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We're not probably talking about uh, a meltdown. Right. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. All right, Damien, we've been going for a little bit here, and I think we solved most of the world's problems while we've been on this podcast. So, um, if folks want to reach out to you and, and see about maybe a speaking engagement or just uh, pick your brain on stuff, how would they do that? DamianMason.com, D-A-M-I-A-N, Mason.com. Just like you, I'm on Twitter at Damian P. Mason, and they can find me through you because you're the Moving Iron Podcast. You're Casey Seymour. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, Damian Mason, professional speaker. They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm all over the place. I'd love to hear from your listeners. I very much appreciate you having me on here. All right, buddy. Well, uh, Damian, I appreciate you being on, and uh, we will catch you down the road, bud. Thanks, Casey. Take care. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at MovingIronPodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Andrew Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. You'll be able to hear Dryline Farmer Podcast, Girls Talk Ag, The Topsoil Podcast, Ag News Daily, Working Cows, Heifer Please, Throwback Iron, and Ask Agnes. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here